This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, translated by David Broder. In this book, one of the world's leading radical philosophers analyzes the failure of the Syriza experience in Greece. Over the last six years, Greece has provided the world with an open-air political lesson. The country's deep economic and social crisis has exposed the fundamental contradictions of the European Union, and indeed, the capitalist world as a whole. It has been a test case for movements seeking to put an end to the authoritarian anarchy of neoliberal capitalism. The Greek resistance to EU institutions and financial market hegemony offered a beacon of hope. Yet the movementist politics of 2011 could not build anything lasting, and Syriza's efforts as a party of government soon led to impasse. For Elan Badou, it is not enough to mourn this defeat. We must understand why such a vigorous opposition could fail. Greece, and the reinvention of politics, argues that an opposition of real consequence must revive the communist hypothesis, the vision of an alternative state structure. The orienting maxims that this hypothesis provides light the way for effective political action. Written in the storm of the crisis, the interventions collected in this book offer a path out of our contemporary powerlessness. Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What to do and how to think about electoral politics. Over the next couple months, I'm going to be posting an interview every few weeks that tries to help answer those questions. I'll be speaking to Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Chakwe Antar Lumumba about his radical vision for a city in the heart of the Deep South. And I'll be talking to Jacobin editorial board member Seth Ackerman, three leftist women running for the state house in Pennsylvania, two DSA leaders about the organization's new electoral strategy, and possibly more. Today, I'm speaking to Nomiki Konst, a correspondent for the Young Turks and a member of the Democratic National Committee's Unity Reform Commission. She was appointed to the commission by Bernie Sanders whose presidential campaign she served as a surrogate. I also wanted to let you know that next week, both episodes will be dedicated to guns, including the political economy of gun culture. I'll be speaking to Jennifer Carlson and Patrick Blanchfield. Before we get rolling, please support the freely offered left-wing media that you consume, i.e. this podcast. You can do so at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here's Namiki Konst. Namiki Konst, welcome to the dig. Thank you for having me, Daniel. I appreciate it. I want to open this by asking you the big questions that all my little questions will be trying to get at, which is, how should the left 
right now be thinking about the Democratic Party? Well, I think the left has a long history of being made up of many different groups with conflicting uh, agendas and strategies. And so in a moment like this where the left is growing and the winds are blowing even more to the left than probably uh, in the last, I would say, 80 years, I think it's really important for the left to understand that they have a moment of power. I mean, and I say that in the sense that they should feel empowered, but they should also utilize their power. I really find that often folks who've been doing this for a while will sometimes get into this form of Stockholm syndrome. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, I mean, I, I, no one really wants to operate from a place of power, especially if, you know, from, from my perspective, I'm very energy focused and I like to kind of like lead with my heart and my values. But the truth is, is that we're operating in a space where power is, um, it's a form of currency. And so as long as we are trying to take over the space so that we can change the dynamics, we kind of still have to operate from that perspective. So that means like they, meaning the establishment, the Democrats, have been in control of power, uh, these establishment Democrats, for, you know, 35, 40 years. And now the numbers are, are shrinking for them, and they know that. And so sometimes there's more desperate tactics that come from the centrist, you know, establishment, corporate Democrats. And I think that the left gets annoyed and discouraged, not understanding that they're going, they're, they're, they're going desperate because they're desperate. And we have the ability to move things very quickly because, like, I'll just take the DNC as an example. Um you know, we have, that's the most insider game possible. And we still, I would say, have more than half of the DNC membership. Uh, there's always games in the final round where the establishment knows the rules and they, they, they play with, you know, they play games with people. And sometimes they, they break the rules uh, to maintain control. But we actually have the numbers. I just don't think that we operate from that space. And if we operate from that space, if we are the ones who control the narrative, it's really kind of hard for them to work around that. And that's, that's how I try to work. Um, and I think people around me know that, like I, I will get in their face uh, because I know that we have the power and we have, we have a whole generation at our backs, maybe two. Yeah. I, th I think that's a uh, really smart analysis. In other words, the left is used to being powerless and we need to get out of that mindset yeah. and, and uh, not be afraid to take power when, when that's possible. And in terms of how the actions of the Democratic Party establishment are read by the left, I think like looking at the 2016 election, it's seen by by some as evidence of this kind of Machiavellian genius uh, operation that connived to shut down Sanders. I think the take home message is precisely the opposite, which is that it was an emperor wears no clothes moment. Mm, yep. I would agree with that. And that they, they didn't anticipate the movement to be growing this much. And honestly, uh, oh, well, let's have real talk here. 2016 wasn't an accident. If anybody looks at history and or even recent history and saw where the trends were going, um, it's no surprise that it happened. But I think we have to be real with ourselves and say we 
moved this country to the left with very little organization. So now, what's that old line? Don't get mad, get organized. That's what we need to be doing. <laughs> like we need to suck it up and say, you know, so, so there's, there's, I, I'll go back to purity politics for a second because, you know, I'm, people who know me personally know that I'm, in, I'm as radical as you can get, right? But I do deal with the establishment. And so sometimes on Twitter, like people will kind of say things like, oh, how dare you, you know, meet with that person. It's like, well, if you want to have power, you have to win power over. <laughs> you can't just sit in a corner and like speak amongst yourselves and then complain when things don't get done. You know, if Cory Booker decides he's now for Medicare for all, even though he might not actually be inside his heart, you know what? Great. Use him. As long as he votes for Medicare for all, that's what matters. Vote him out if he changes his mind later. But right now, you want to use that. What lessons, wise or otherwise, do you think the Democratic Party establishment learned from the 2016 Sanders insurgency? I don't know if it's there, there, there are lessons that were learned from the campaign, but I think that they're trying to mimic, uh, obviously, some of the movement organizing. Like, they create these pseudo-populist tags to programs and uh, you know, yeah, for instance, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Like, like skills. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, they did this, they had a press release a couple of days ago where they announced uh, several dozen organizations would be focusing on registering young people to vote. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is so adorable because there is not one leftist group on here. Like, Forget about just our revolution. DFA, which has been around for a long time, PCCC wasn't in that that mix. A lot of the groups that align with the left economic populism were not on that list of of folks who are going to go out there and and um, register voters that are young. Which is hilarious because we obviously are the young voters. <laughs> so you think that we're the ones who are able to, to <laughs> register young voters. But it was like very institutional, like, you know, young Democrats of America and swing left. You know, I have never been to a swing left event, but I hear it quoted so much. And I'm like, who are these <laughs> mystical swing lefters? And I'm a former young Democrat of America. It was my first job, actually. And I mean, these are not the people that are going to go out there and like organize rallies. These are, for the most part, and I love YDA. So anybody listening, which probably not, but if there are any YDAers, like I have a strong appreciation for YDA historically. You know, Jane Club, who as is as radical as you can get, was the former president of YDA when I came up, different generation. But they're like the, the mini operatives. They're like the people who show up in suits and you know go to mock trial events. They're not organizing rallies. <laughs> One of the major sites of this fight between the left and the party establishment is in the party's Unity Reform Commission. Before we get into what um, you all have been working on and debating on that commission, mm -hmm. what is it and why was it created? The Unity Reform Commission, uh, it was created during the DNC convention in 2016 around the time of these committee meetings that they had beforehand. They, you know, they had the platform committee, which I was on. Um, they had the rules committee, which really birthed the idea of the Unity Reform Commission. And part of this was a negotiation between the Sanders and Clinton campaign, kind of as a deal. Okay, Sanders uh, will 
vote for and endorse Secretary Clinton from the floor, basically surrendering all of his votes to Secretary Clinton, if you recall that moment. Yeah. So that there wasn't a floor a floor fight because she actually didn't have enough delegates. That's what people didn't realize is that the super delegates were not in the mix until the second ballot. But that was the negotiation there. I mean, he wasn't going to win back all those other delegates on the floor. There would be no floor fight. It would just be a mess. There, numerically, there was no way for him. Sorry, guys. There was no way for him to win that floor fight. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was the deal. And his... But Clinton didn't want the floor fight, so right. that gave the Sanders camp some leverage. Exactly. And so he said, great, let's reform the party. Let's get rid of superdelegates. Uh, let's do a mandate right here in the room. We are not doing commission until we have that mandate. And the mandate was that the superdelegates would be reduced by at least 60%, which essentially brings uh, the electeds to the table, the ones that feel like they have some sort of right to have a more important vote than um, the average delegate who has to run for their you know, delegate position. So the, that was the negotiation. The history of these commissions, they go back, you know, several decades and they're important. Cause like I'll see online, people say, Oh, nothing ever happens at these commissions. That's actually false. We, the entire idea of a super delegate came out of the hunt commission in 1981. In 1982, you know, they were enacted and it got worse and worse over time. Jesse Jackson, you know, fought for a lot of uh, the reforms that, that, believe it or not, were added to the party <laughs> after wow. his commission in, I believe, 1988. So there was a commission eight years ago when uh, Barack Obama wanted to get rid of superdelegates, or Secretary Clinton, excuse me, wanted to get rid of superdelegates uh, after Barack Obama won. Not much happened, but there was a debate. And so that was actually an interesting uh, piece of leverage and a piece of history to put on the table because it, it, it's hard to remember, but there are a lot of people in the party that were there in the early 80s who were on the opposite side, meaning they were the ones fighting for reform in the early 80s, and now suddenly they're in the establishment position. And what was really interesting about this commission, and I'm seeing now in the Rules and Bylaws Committee, is that some of these people who are not on the take, which is I think is an important factor here, yeah are now saying things like, you know what, the party does need to reform X, Y, and Z. It's not a partisan issue. It's not a Hillary versus Bernie issue, this commission. It's a, do the Democrats want to win back seats? It's lost its way, and it's gotten very greedy. But there are a lot of conflicts of interests. And so that's really where the divide in the Democratic Party is, is, is you have people who are lobbyists and consultants who have attached their businesses to uh, the idea of having a billion dollar campaign every four years that is run out of the DNC and in any other normal institution, those people would not have a seat at the table because it's not <laughs> of interest, <laughs> but they're writing the rules for themselves. So that's, that's where we are right now. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World by Andreas Malm. This book is an attack on the idea that nature and society are impossible to distinguish from each other. In a world careening towards climate chaos, nature is dead. It can no longer be separated from society. Everything is a blur of hybrids where humans possess no exceptional agency to set them apart from dead matter. But is it really so? 
In this blistering polemic and theoretical manifesto, Andreas Malm develops a counterargument. In a warming world, nature comes roaring back, and it is more important than ever to distinguish between the natural and the social. Only with a unique agency attributed to humans can resistance become conceivable. The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World by Andreas Malm, out now from Verso Books. So explain the, if you can go into some detail about the the, the various proposals and how the debate over them unfolded on, on the commission. And I know the commission uh, submitted its its report and just explained sort of where, where that goes from here. So the commission started meeting um, almost a year ago, last year. And our numbers are, were obviously outnumbered, right? You know, Secretary Clinton, because she won the nomination, had two more members than we did. And then there were three members that were going to be appointed after the, the DNC chair's race by the, the new chair. Tom Perez, I say this in quotations, won the DNC chair's race, <laughs> uh, got three people. And so we had seven and Secretary Clinton had nine and then there were three more. And then there were two, um, a chair and a co-chair or a, a vice chair. So we knew we were outnumbered. Um, but there were the issues that we dealt with and we kind of broke them into committees and then reported back to the larger group every time we met and we had different, um, we dealt with different subjects at every committee meeting throughout the year and had phone calls in between. So the, the, it was super delegates, right? Do yeah. we eliminate them completely? Do we reduce them by 60? Who do we keep? You know, we definitely had a mandate to absolutely get it down 60%. So no matter what that was going to happen. The second area was primary reform for the presidential primaries and caucus reform. And then this was the committee I was on, uh, which is probably, in my opinion, always going to be the hardest committee to get the, the, the work done, but it's really hard to spin, and that's party reform. And that covers everything from how the DNC uh, follows its rules and, and making sure there are mechanisms in place so that when the rules are broken, um, there's some sort of... Uh, punishment, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and then that there's like a judicial body, something, you know, a group that was unaffiliated and, and not appointed that could actually like legislate this stuff, not legislate it from a perspective of, of legislate the, the, the disagreements. Right. And then, you know, the budget. So one thing we learned during the DNC chairs race is that people who are on the executive committee, people who are, have a fiduciary duty to the party were um, unaware of what the budget was, where the money was being spent, how much money was being taken in, where it was going, what are the metrics. That's like crazy talk, right? Anybody who hears that is like, wait, so who's signing <laughs> checks? This is not a little bit of money. This is a national party that's influencing our democracy. And we don't know like, who the contractors are. We don't have metrics. We don't have a budget that is like being put before anybody other than the chair or the treasurer. This is insane. This is the kind of thing that Donna Brazil said yeah. that she found absolutely shocking as, as well, right? Yeah. They were sending checks behind her back when she came in as an interim chair. So the, the important thing to keep in mind, and I think this gets lost also, is that Donna Brazil was not the chair when that whole email scandal broke, right? The WikiLeaks scandal. When WikiLeaks 
her emails popped up. She was a vice chair at the DNC and a CNN contributor. Still no excuse. But one other side of this, and, and I'm going to actually, I might get a little heat for this, but you know, my, my former colleague, Jordan Sheridan, uh, was the one who went up to Donna Brazil and said, and, and started arguing with her at the DNC during one of the, 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 the debates and said, you know, why would you share information, you know, question with the Clinton campaign? And what he didn't do is he didn't, this is what like, you know, I think it's important in journalism to kind of also ask the yeah. other side. He didn't call up Sec Senator Sanders' campaign and say, does Donna Brazil, Brazil talk to you guys? Because guess what? She did. <laughs> And and so it was sort of uh, misrepresented at the time as her uh, putting her finger on the scale for yeah. for Hillary when uh, there's a journalistic ethics question there, but but it wasn't so much a political favoritism one. <laughs> also, she's not a journalist; she's a commentator, and we yeah, were confused yeah. between those things. I mean, there were a lot of factors there. I think in the end, it just looked so bad for CNN, so they had to cut the contract. Yeah, but, I'd say cable news is at fault for confusing those things. Yeah, like cable news yeah. as an institution in our society. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of shitty. I, 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 <laughs> it was it was a tough thing at the time to deal with, but um, you know, and she wasn't the chair, and then and then she became chair. So this is this was the point I was trying to make: is that she became chair when W. Wasserman Schultz had to step down. She was an elected chair; they didn't appoint her chair. She was the next person in line, and from what I understand, that the people in the DNC that were controlling everything, like Debbie's people. We're not excited about that. And so they snuck around her back and started signing checks. Wow. So returning to the question of, of what you guys uh, decided and um, where that goes from here. We put together this, a bunch of resolutions basically. And then we debated a lot behind the scenes and then we deb debated a lot of the resolutions uh, in our final couple of meetings. And we you know, some of the, alum, the, the were voted down. I mean, I tried to ban, I had, I had a very detailed conflict of interest ban resolution and it was voted down. And I was, I was a little heartbroken when that happened, uh, because you can't solve this problem unless you remove anybody with a conflict of interest from having a voting spot in the DNC. Now it was still passed. There was a smaller form, like a basic ban, but mine was more explicit and detailed. Um, and what were the loopholes that made it into the final proposal that you would have liked to see eliminated? Uh, it was just generic. It's not so much of a loophole. It's just like, you know, we ban conflicts of interest. What does that mean? Like <laughs> who, who, the voting members, the executive committee. But, but the great thing is, um, and, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but it goes to the rules and bylaws committee and the first rules and bylaws committee they said that it didn't go far enough. And so I had to get up on the, on the podium and say it didn't go far enough because it was voted down. But this is why it's important that, like, you know the process. And that's why we, it was important that we were in the room to talk to rules and bylaws and give them the backstory. So now they have the opportunity to strengthen it. Um, but, okay, so basically what happened is we, all the resolutions that were voted on and passed and were put into like a document and then voted on unanimously. And so we basically agreed unanimously the whole document after we read through the whole thing. So we voted on each resolution, debated behind the scenes, and then we put it all into one document and voted on the document unanimously. And then we submitted, it was written up and we submitted it to the public January 1st, 
and you can find it online. Uh, you know, we've posted it. I think our revolution has it listed as well on their site. And that now goes before the rules and bylaws committee to be debated and, and discussed and, and strengthened, um, or passed and incorporated into the rules and bylaws, but it is not dependent on the rules and bylaws. We could take the document and just put it before the DNC membership and they can vote on it as a whole. I, I believe that's where we are right now. And that would happen hypothetically if rules and bylaws tried to water down. Yeah. Signi- gotcha. What has Tom Perez's leadership looked like at the DNC so far? I've been disappointed that he, despite the amount of pressure that is on him right now, uh, despite the heated race that he was in with, with Keith Ellison, that really came down to a handful of votes. Um, and knowing that this is a divided party right now, it is not a united party. You know, you need a great, bold leader to come in and bring people together and push forward with the future. Uh, I've been very disappointed. I mean, he purged some longtime reformers from the party leadership for no reason. And the excuse that he gave was false because, you know, he said he wanted younger people and millennials. And, you know, and he said this one 55-year-old lobbyist was a millennial. wasn't even trying. And I think that's what's concerning is I don't know if he's committed to transforming this party the way that it needs to. We're in crisis. I mean, when I say we, I mean, our society is in crisis. We have Donald Trump ripping apart our country and selling it off to highest bidder bidders and workers suffering and income inequality, the worst it's ever been, you know, since 1920. And the DNC is an empty vessel that has nothing to stand for other than losing and giving money to consultants over the past 10 years while we had a a, a Democrat in the White House. And what Tom Perez needs to be doing right now is saying, how do I fix this? Not how do I press release that it's and take credit when, you know, somebody wins a special election that they had nothing to do with. You know, it can't just be like, like metaphors and unicorns and long-winded speeches before the DNC membership, you actually have to start getting tough. And for him to purge people who are standing for party reform and think that he can get away with it was incredibly disturbing. And the fact that he is trying to do it again after that shit show happened in November, this fall, that he is still not saying come forward, progressive you know, reformers, and there's another election to replace somebody, and he's got all the ability to support more reform, uh, is revealing. What's this new attempt that you're referring to? There was a member of the DNC executive committee who had to step down because of a reaction or a lack, not a proper response to a Me Too scandal in his state. And so there's an election right now to fill that spot. Um, and so, you know, Dr. Jim Zogby, who's a longtime reformer, who's been on the executive committee for a long time, uh, you know, was, was a Sanders, we, we, the two of us were on the URC together, the Reform Commission, and he lost his spot in the purge. And so he's now running again. And there's another person running who's a lobbyist. And, you know, he's of Puerto Rican descent from New Jersey, but does a lot of business in New York. 
and uh, and there's just you know some stuff happening behind the scenes, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I I find it concerning that why wouldn't Tom just come out and say you know I would love for this to be a great opportunity to bring more reformers to the party, and I, I just don't understand it because he's not a consultant, and he's not somebody who is making money off the consulting system. It's just like he's there to kind of like let people do the business out in the open. They're not even trying anymore. It's like when the DCCC gets caught doing stuff, It's it, they used to try to do it behind the scenes. Now they're just doing it out in the open. Uh, and I want to get to the DCCC in a minute and your thoughts on that because there's been a lot of recent revelations there. Um, but but one of the the things that was supposed to heal the, the, the rift in the party, the post- election. Well, initially, the thing that was supposed to heal the rift was all these establishment people coming out to back Ellison's bid for DNC chair. But then obviously, Perez jumped into the race. And after Perez beat Ellison, Ellison was made deputy chair. What has he been able to do as from that position? Good question. (laughs) Uh, I I talked to Representative Ellison, you know, semi-regularly. And I think he's trying his best right now, um, given the circumstances of the party. And I know that he, you know, some of the stuff that, um, did a lot, like actually was great ideas. You know, he went out on the road for the summer of progress all across the country talking about, you know, working people's issues. I think it got lost in the media storm, but you know, that was a Keith Ellison idea, like to go out there and talk to people and get connected. I don't know how much of a role he plays in terms of like the everyday decision-making. Um, I don't want to speak on his behalf. I actually don't know, but he has been incredibly supportive of the unity reform commission. And frankly, I think because he's been so open in supporting the reform commission, it has put pressure on, uh, you know, chairman Perez to also support it because it looks a little bad if, you know, Ellison's out there saying I fully support the unity reform commission. And then he's, he's different than Tom Perez. I, I think he's in a tough spot. I mean, Keith Ellison is in Congress, and he is also in the DNC. And when he ran, he said he was going to step down from Congress and serve fully for the DNC. So he's in the DNC now, and he's in Congress, and he responds to progressives, but he's in this institution, and he's not running the institution. So he's kind of caught in between two worlds where he doesn't have the full ability to transform the party. And I don't even know how much of the ability he has. And he's getting pushed back from progressives for being in the institution. So I don't envy what he's doing. I don't envy him at all right now. I think he's trying really hard. But, you know, you're you're still stuck with the system that you're in until we take over. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which you referenced earlier, the brazen activities. Um, For one, it was recently revealed that shortly after the Vegas massacre, a regional press secretary wrote to candidates that you and your candidate will be understandably outraged and upset, as will your community. However, do not politicize it today. And now it turns out a similar email was sent from the same person after the Parkland shooting to not politicize, quote unquote, the tragedy. And the DCCC was also revealed to have basically hired a polling firm to misleadingly ask questions as a pretext to attack single-payer health insurance, and it's been criticized for tilting towards centrist establishment candidates. What's your take on that organization and what, if anything, can be done about it? 
this is nothing new from the DCCC. They've had, there's been a lot of criticism of the DTRIP for a long time for doing these kinds of things. Um, I think it's wonderful that the process is now being exposed to general audience and they're being shamed for it because shame to me is an incredibly powerful tool for reform and change. And I don't know who's tipping off the reporters on this stuff within the DCCC, but my God, keep going. And if you work <laughs> at any other organizations like this, just keep it up. I mean, these memos are leak. shocking. Yeah, leak. Keep leaking. <laughs> I, I actually do know. I mean, this, this is more <laughs> I know a couple of people who work in institutions that are radical. And like, I always ask them, I was like, why are you still working there, given the fact that you are so, you know, far left leaning? And they're like, uh, are you sure you want to tell me to leave? Like, I can just give you information. Anytime. <laughs> oh, fair point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Don't whoever you are, don't leave the DCCC and uh, keep leaking. Thank you. Thanks. My last question is I want to ask you about how you see the fight with the neoliberal party establishment playing out both this year in terms of left primary challengers and candidates this mm-hmm. cycle And also in 2020, because there's obviously Bernie, there's Elizabeth Warren, and then there's all these people who don't really come from the party's left, but who have been trying to play to it, like Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand, Cory Booker. And in some ways, there's some things that I look at that make me excited. And then when I look at the 2020 election, um, I see Bernie mostly, and then I'm like, wow, the left has a very thin bench. Yeah, I think that's that's totally accurate. So... I don't know how 2018 is going to shape up. You know, there's one thing to keep in mind is that the politics in every state is different. And so uh, the primary dates are different in every single state. And there are states that are more friendly to progressive primary challengers, even if they have institutional or party support because it is an insider's game um, than others, right? But then the other factor here is and I want, I want people to keep this in mind if, if you're listening and, and you really want those leftist party challengers to win. Primaries are about turnout. And so if they're running against an establishment, I mean, that's why the DCCC is so threatened by some of these candidates, is that it really comes to getting people out to vote. They're usually low turnout. And if you can, and it can come down to a couple thousand votes, sometimes it can come down even less fewer votes than, than a couple thousand if you're you know in a smaller district, especially in those conservative districts. So if there's a centrist, right? like the weirdness of, of politics right now. If there's a centrist who's running in a conservative district and say the institutional players want that centrist to win because they're more conservative and they think they can win in the general, you know, ne- don't rely on the institutions because they're not going to help you, right? Like never, don't put all your eggs in that basket. They help awesome, but if they don't, you know, organize on your own. But also if they do, be careful. <laughs> like don't lose yourself mm-hmm. in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is about turnout. And that's why this, you know, if you can mobilize that energy and keep it directed towards the issues that matter, I think it's it could be really powerful. I just hope that we're focusing on that in every district and that we really do have the boots on the ground and we're organizing um, very hard. Obviously, every race is different, so I don't want to compare like a gubernatorial primary uh, that could be very costly in some states to, you know, a legislative seat where it could really come down to a couple thousand votes and you don't need as much money. Um, so that's really powerful. But 
I, I'm going to add one more thing because you did say something that I think is incredibly important about the lack of a bench in terms of 2020. I don't know what's going to happen in 2020. Um, I truly don't. I mean, I know the type of candidate I would align myself with if I were ever to get back into a presidential race. You know, if Bernie runs, I'm in. Like, you don't have to even, like, <laughs> no breath, like, doing it, right? Um, I think everybody else is going to be a little bit careful if Bernie runs or they're going to be vying for a vice presidential spot. And and I think that might be the game for, I think there's some other candidates that might pop up that are operating in the shadows, um, like Terry McAuliffe and Andrew Cuomo. You know, oh. Andrew Cuomo's getting in $30 million. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh. He does not love me. In fact, I would, if it came down to Andrew Cuomo and like any of those other candidates, I would join their campaign to fight Andrew Cuomo. If it was like between the two of them. So, <laughs> but okay. So speaking of Andrew Cuomo and I, I spent the day yesterday shadowing Mayor de Blasio and you know, he, he's got a complicated record. People have a really tough time with him progressives. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to shadow him. Cause I, I kind of wanted to know like, who is Mayor de Blasio? Is he the radical who got married in Cuba and you know, moved to Park Slope because he couldn't have an interracial marriage like in the neighborhood that, you know, the first lady and him were living in. And and P.S., he also worked in Nicaragua and openly supported the Sandinistas and went to DSA conventions every year. Is it that Mayor de Blasio? Or is it Mayor de Blasio, who was the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton in 2000? Or is it the Mayor de Blasio that's now in a bromance with Bernie Sanders? Like, I want to know who this man is because despite Everything that's been going on, all the knives that are out to take him down because he's the New York City mayor, which always happens historically. The press, the tabloids are going to rip you to shreds. They're definitely going to rip you to shreds if you have some sort of like progressive background. But in this moment in particular, you know, for a mayor who came right after Bloomberg and Bloomberg's ratings were still high, (laughs) you know, he came in after Bloomberg. He's the mayor of Wall Street right? Literally. It's in his backyard. He has Andrew Cuomo, who is his nemesis, who's just pitching stories against him all day long. And all they do is fight over everything. And, and nobody takes right. So all of this, he's able to accomplish some things that he just isn't able to get messaged out there. And why I'm going to use this as an example is, I think there's some people that we're not even aware of that are on our bench that are using, he's the most powerful mayor in the world, right? And he used to support the Sandinistas. <laughs> so, like, we have allies in places, and I just think that sometimes we're not thinking about where they are. That doesn't mean he's going to run for president, but I do think we have to, like, be aware that there's a lot of mayors out there, and he's build, building, like, a little coalition of mayors. There are people who are just getting elected now. Um, I have a little bit more hope. A little bit more hope. And, and, and Trump doesn't have that. Well, Nomiki Konst, thank you very (laughs) much for ending on that hopeful note. Yeah, well, maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Thank you. Nomiki Konst is a correspondent for the Young Turks and a member of the DNC's Unity Reform Commission, appointed by Bernie Sanders, whose presidential campaign she served as a surrogate. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, 
after noting that just because most any opposition party is branded as communistic doesn't mean that it really is. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. <laughs>